grandson, I haven't worked on my great-grandkids yet, but on my grandson, who's not even old enough to drive, but all of my other kids and my grandkids have heard this same and have grown up with this one statement that I will impart to you. When you begin to drive, when you get in your car, remember one thing. Everyone outside this car is an idiot, and it's up to you to protect them. <laughs> Think about that. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Thank you, Miles. Um, Are the other drivers thinking that about you? Probably. I hope. I wish they would. Although there are some out there that I don't think are. So, I'm on. Before we get started, before we pray, before we read, I want to. I want to tell you just a couple of things very quickly. Uh, this particular passage that I have been given, Kirk Boyd really knows how to pick them. Uh, has given me more fits. Has given me more anxiety. Has given me more angst, I suppose, than any other sermon that I can ever remember having written. It's not because of what we're about to read in chapter 12, 1 through 6. It's some of the things that I see go beyond that, that are not the norms that people will... uh, say that these things represent. There's three representations in here. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. It's the first time and the only time in the over 20 years that I have been uh, constructing sermons, either as a student or as a pastor, that I actually had my wife read it to see if it actually made sense before you all ever got to see it. And she said, yeah, that, that makes sense. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impart it to you today. Uh, Friday night, Kirk was, uh, we were texting back and forth as we often do. And uh, I told him that this particular passage and the way I am going to present it today might put people over the edge. And he asked me why. And I said, well, I've got more scripture here than I think I've ever had in one particular sermon ever before. And he said, send it to me and uh, I'll make sure that the folks in the church are able to get it. So I've got copies here that I'm going to pass out. I think he said there's 12. Okay, alright, so please take one. Uh, kind of follow along with me today. Uh, we won't we won't state them all, we won't, uh, we won't quote them all, but you've got them, and I will allude to them in, in, the, uh, in, in the sermon. So uh, I've just about put it off as long as I can, so let's go ahead and uh, open with prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, you know this, uh, the feeling that we have about this particular passage and how strongly we feel about some things. And so would you help me? Uh, don't The words that, that this congregation is about to hear, may they be your words and not mine. Uh, may they be far better, far superior to anything I could say. But may they sink into open, willing hearts this day that uh, we can look at this particular passage with... Maybe a little bit different view. Maybe I'm overplaying this, overthinking this, and it's uh, 
maybe is a little bit more open than, than I might think. And if that's the case, forgive me for my feelings the way that I have. But I ask you now, if you would, would you just guide us and would you uh, strengthen us and would you bless us as we read your word and then hear it explained. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking again at uh, Revelation 12, 1 through 6. If you'd stand for me as I read God's word. And here's where John has written to us. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. May God bless us with the reading of this, his word. And may he bless us even further with an understanding of that word to our hearts and minds. And amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay, here's another interesting passage for us in the beginning of Revelation 12, as if we haven't already had some interesting events happen in chapters 1 through 11. So what do we have here in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12? The main characters are a pregnant woman just about ready to give birth to a son. Now, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but to preview this young male, it is said in verse 5, he will shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron. Can't imagine who this might be, can you? Back up now to verse 3, and we see that there's a red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and a crown on each of the heads. Rather imposing character here, I would have to say. Short passage, small number of players, all very important to the grand scheme of things in the book of Revelation. Also, if we were to put a thing on the beginning of this chapter, we could in all likelihood say it is the beginning of the final battle between good and evil, between God and Satan between the full face of freedom versus the final face of death and destruction. This is the first of seven signs that John will convey to us, and it's described in these three words. It is a great sign. Let's look a bit more closely at that great sign. Keep in mind that in this chapter 12 alone, the term great is used four different times. In other words, there isn't going to be anything minute, small, or to be overlooked concerning this chapter. We mentioned a second ago who the young newborn might very well be. In the commentaries I used, of course, it is Jesus. But let's look a little bit further on the other chapters who they could very well be as well. The woman giving birth is Israel. In fact, in one place I read it stated that in order to understand the book of Revelation, we had 
to draw the conclusion that the woman is indeed Israel. We'll save the description of what surrounded her for another minute. And then the dragon, as you could imagine, is Satan. His description will also come a little bit later. And yes, the child is indeed Jesus. In essence here, when things start to get a bit confusing, maybe it already has for a lot of us, I don't know, but what I'm going to try to do is break as much of this info down into six verses into more manageable, understandable chunks. At least that's my goal. I'd encourage you to jot notes down here too. It would be beneficial for you to do some research on your own. Also, look at the questions that that we put out for this particular sermon for this week as well. That might help you in leading you in your uh, search or your research here. You may find in this sermon this morning that my thoughts may be somewhat or maybe even for some of you all a lot off track. Also remember, my disclaimer, we don't know when all of this is going to take place and we don't know when Jesus is going to return. But we as Christians believe that he is indeed going to return to us at some point. We just don't know when. So I wanted to look first at the woman. Some say this represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. There have been some women who over time, who became cult leaders, actually thought the woman was them, that they they were talking about them. Not sure I could ever be that egotistical. And yet I suppose there are some who may read this and think, hey, you know what? That woman's me. That's exactly who I am. Good luck with that one. The woman has some identifying characteristics about her. And as we said, she's Israel, according to many who are far smarter than me. One passage that a lot of what we see in the Old and New Testaments as to who is being spoken to centers around Israel directly. For instance, Isaiah 9, 6 is one. The statement, for unto us a child is born. Well, oftentimes we believe that that us means you and me, don't we? And that may be true. Originally, it was, though, directed to Israel. Micah 5.2 says, Speaking about Bethlehem Ephrathah, From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, born in Bethlehem, born out of eternity. When you get the opportunity, read Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 11, and you might get a little bit more of an understanding of where Jesus comes from and to whom he is born. Yes, that passage is to you and me. Don't get me wrong. Whether some want to admit that or not, and I'll address that in, in just a second. But it was addressed to Israel first, no matter what. Verse 1, they include the sun, the moon, and the stars. We can see a parallel with the sun, the moon, and the stars, though, in the Genesis 37, 9. This is one of the two dreams that Joseph had that he told his father and his brothers about. Here we're told concerning Joseph, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the stars were bowing down to me. Basically, they would all be under Joseph's authority, bowing down to him. But when Jacob first heard this, 
He took it to mean that he, his mother, Joseph's mother, Rachel, and his brothers would be bowing down to him. And we know that did later come to pass. Yet there was a bit more involved than just his family, as we know. We'll look at the sun, moon, and the stars all again shortly. I think it's safe to say here that the woman is merely symbolic, not a real person in this particular instance, not here anyway. There are other passages in the Old and the New Testaments that pertain to Israel being described as a woman. Look at uh, Isaiah 54, 1 through 6, and Jeremiah 3, verse 20 as two examples from the Old Testament. And then if you look over in the New, Galatians 4, 26. Now, I think we've beaten that horse sufficiently. Do your homework, read those passages, and I think you'll see a little bit more about what I'm trying to say. Okay, so we see that the woman is described. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. One commentator I read said this about the sun, moon, and the crown. The sun represents her shining glory of God, her brilliance and dignity of God's glory to the nations. The moon is a symbol of her eternal covenant relationship. And the covenant of cycles found in the moon and in her feasts. The victor's crown is the symbol of her victory over intense struggle. The twelve stars on the crown are the twelve tribes of Israel. And so finally in verse 2 we see that she gives birth to this much anticipated child. Anticipated by the world by the way I read it. But also, by the way I read it, just as anticipated by the dragon or Satan. I want to say one final thing about the woman and who or what she is to represent. Again, this is going to show and prove my ignorance on the subject. Nearly every commentator, if not all of them, make the same argument. Israel is at the very heart of what is taking place here. One went so far as to say that the Bible never said that God was going to replace Israel with Gentile believers. That instead, Gentile believers will join with Israel. And that may be accurate. I don't know. The nation Israel is mentioned here no less than 75 times in the New Testament. That's important. But I think we play a role here as the church as well. And this is where I think maybe some will disagree with me. One particular passage I think we can turn to for explanation here is in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. This is where I kind of fall into all of this. Verses 6 through 8 specifically state my view at least. It says, but it is not through the word of God, although the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. I want to go down this rabbit trail another foot or so. What does that last statement in Romans have to do with us as the church? 
Paul explains it in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. Here he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, insert Gentile right there if you want to instead of Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Go to Jeremiah again. Jeremiah 31, 31 makes this statement to more or less tie it all together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We understand the house of Israel, right? Why specifically Judah? It's the tribe that Jesus came from. Now, while many more knowledgeable than me believe that much will center around Israel here, I cannot help but believe that this is more about Abraham's offspring than it is about Israel proper, if that makes any sense at all. But what's the other connection between us and Abraham that allows for that tie together? Galatians 3, 25 through 27 says it all. But now that faith has come, we're no longer a guardian For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Get that now, through faith. That's important. For as many of you as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Do we know Abraham had faith so that there could be this this tie-in together? Well, sure. Look at Genesis 15, 6. Romans 4, 1 and on and Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Even Hebrews 11 the faith chapter, the faith hall of fame chapter, 8 through 10. There's your proof. In my mind, in Jesus, Jeremiah 31, 31, prophecy is fulfilled. So while Israel plays a large role in the symbolic stance of the woman who gives birth to Jesus, that was Israel. There's no doubt about that one. And before the church, there was Israel. But I believe that in some aspect of this, we can and we should, as the church, have a rightful place when Israel is talked about. Now, I'm probably wrong. This is my thinking and my thinking only. Verse 2 is rather short in comparison to our discussion in verse 1. The woman is pregnant and is about to give birth. She's in pain, labor pains it appears. One place I read said that those pains represent Roman oppression and occupation. Makes sense, I suppose. I could perhaps, though, see that that pain representing more than that. It could be more than just about Roman oppression. It could be about the pains and the pressures of being the Messiah born to the world as well as he comes from the tribe of Judah. We'll see a bit more concerning this passage in verse 5 when she's ready to give birth. So let's move on to the next character in this passage. That's going to be the red dragon. Look where this next verse takes place. It takes place in heaven. It's another sign, meaning it's in all likelihood a symbol. One commentator stated that Satan's description suggests his fierce power and murderous nature, a picture of evil in all its hideous strength. In fact, another commentator I trust implicitly tells us in conjunction with this last statement, Satan is called great here because of his vast power here on earth. He's called red 
because he's a terrible murderer. He's called a dragon because of his vicious character. We've seen the dragon before. Look at Ezekiel 29, verse 3. It's seen in Daniel 7, 7 and verse 24. And as many as 13 times in the book of Revelation alone. Let's go back to Ezekiel just a second. Uh, Chapter 28, verses 11 through 18. Here you'll find a bit more concerning the fall of what once was a guardian cherub, the signet of perfection, as he is described. Read that passage when you get an opportunity. To be a bit more specific in verse 3, we see that the great red dragon has seven heads, and upon each is a crown. More specifically, these were diadems. We know this dragon is Satan, and we have to ask why should we care that much about what he's wearing? So what? Well, diadems, while not representing his authority, the diadems represent crowns. They're akin to crowns worn by a royalty, usually. The seven heads and the ten horns discussed is a bit more in Revelation 17. A quick description might say, bring in the prophecy of Daniel 7, 7 and 8. states here that the seven heads... And the ten horns refer to the new Roman Empire and Satan's last attempt to rule over it all. That is all I am going to say about that for now. Again, chapter 17 is going to explain these things a little bit more. I'm going to try to keep this as simple here as I possibly can in chapter 12. I'm already complicating it enough. Here, though, it's believed that with the display of royalty by Satan, his power and authority is being shown over all the world. He is, after all, the current ruler of the world. But fortunately for us, not for the entire world. He has no power or authority over you and me, believers in Jesus Christ, now or ever. He's blinded many, though. He's keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. Those last few words that I just gave you are 2,000 years old. They come from 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, or verse 4. You see, this battle has been going on for a very long time. When does it end? Well, again, I can't tell you. Nobody in this room can say. But we can catch glimpses of things that will take place at some point. Oh yeah, while I've been giving you two guarantees every time I preach, I want to add a third one today, and I want to use that from here on. It's one we've alluded to, especially recently. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we'd better be ready. Oh, we know those, right? Number three, the new one. We'd better be sharing that knowledge with the world. Verse 4. More details concerning the red dragon. Though I don't normally like to do this, I'm going to draw from verse 9 of chapter 12 where it states that Satan, or the red dragon he is here, will uh, be cast down to the earth, he and his angels with him. Verse 4 says, The dragon's tail drew one-third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to earth. (laughs) Stars, 
and Satan's angels. This could very well be one and the same thing. We know Satan wasn't alone. Jude 1.6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Could be these angels were symbolized by the term stars. The last part of this verse 4 alludes to how Satan was wanting to destroy the Christ child after he was born. Oh yeah, we see beds up here. That's in case I bore you to tears or to sleep. Feel free. I really thought that would get a bigger laugh. But I mean, that's okay. That's all right. No problem. You're so in tune to what I'm saying here, I guess, right? The last part of this verse 4 alludes to how Jesus was, or how Satan was wanting to destroy the Christ child after he's born. We can see Herod's attempts in Matthew 2 and on, as well as other places in the New Testament. Obviously, we can see it through all of Jesus' ministry until his subsequent death on the cross. Satan really thought he had destroyed that child that was born to the woman, but we know better, don't we? Before we go into verse 5, I'll, I'll ask this question. Can you see how much of what the book of Revelation is about has a tension within it that talks of things that have happened before and yet talks about things that are still to come, that are still to take place? This is one of the reasons that we want to have this study and do it slowly. But I have somewhat of an explanation shortly for, for what I just said. Anyway, verse 5 talks about the birth of Jesus. The child, when he was born, was to rule the world with an iron rod. Psalm 2, verse 9, again speaks to God's Son, coming to earth to rule with a rod of iron and dash his enemies in pieces like a potter's vessel. He would then be taken up to God and his throne. Now that, to me, pertains to the ascension of Jesus when he goes to be with God and sits on the right hand of the Father. That starting part, or the starting part has already taken place. We know he's done that already. He was coming to start correcting the evils of the world, to gather his own unto himself. But Jesus was coming to right all the wrongs for good. We know that's going to happen at some point. That would be the day that he returns. There he truly would be ruling with a rod of iron over his enemies. That's why Satan hates this child that's born. From the beginning, Satan knew the score. The score was first shown to the world in Genesis 3.15, where it is said, these words are from God here. To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That is going to be the final showdown between Christ and Satan. That's the one that God is talking about right here, I think. Now, will all of this be a peaceful revolution? <laughs> Has Satan ever done anything in a peaceful way? Sneaky and sly, maybe. Peaceful? Absolutely not. He wanted to be violent and at the, at the time that the child was born, wanting to devour this child entirely. Do you really think he softened his stance against Jesus any since that first day? If anything, especially as the end nears, he'll be more and more violent. 
But know that in the end, the Lord will rule. Now we're going to get into some fun with numbers. Verse 6, and I don't mean the book numbers, I mean numbers, numbers. Verse 6 states that the woman fled into the wilderness. Why? The woman was being persecuted by the dragon. However, the woman is not left alone. God prepares a place of protection for the woman to be safe. For how long? 1260 days. You know how long that is? Three and a half years. Now, here's where the prophecies of Daniel come in. I found an interesting point. I found along the way of this really difficult sermon to put together where it made sense to as many, I hope, who might hear it as possible. I asked the question previously, can you see how part of Revelation is in the past and some is in the not yet? Well, there is perhaps a defining point. And in my opinion, and my opinion only, it's verse 5 where Jesus ascends into heaven. This is also a point where you could see another point that I made earlier. While the woman may represent Israel, somehow followers of Jesus have to be involved somewhere, somehow. How can that be? The dragon, Satan, let's call it what it is. Satan is attacking the woman. We as followers of Jesus have been faced with trials and tribulations for 2,000 years as well. Jesus told us that was going to happen. As soon as we became a follower of Jesus, these things were going to start taking place, right? Some in here may disagree with me entirely on this, and that's okay. This, again, is primarily my thinking. Three and a half years is one half of the seven-year prophecy in Daniel 9. It's a prophecy, if the prophecy of Daniel is correct and accurate, going back to Christ's ascension as occurring in the first half of the seven years, the events in 12.6 have yet to occur. I think we could argue that here. Many say that the, the yet-to-occur events happen in the 70th week of Daniel, as is seen in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I'm not sure we have reached that point. This is why I said it was fun with numbers. We could argue this till the cows come home. But suffice it to say that no matter how all these events take place, whether we'll all be privileged to see them or be a part of them, or whether we have already been taken up into heaven as many people believe we will, I can safely say I'm clueless. Some of you all might be thinking right now, boy, that's an understatement. But we can take great faith in knowing that God is going to protect His own, no matter what that time looks like. He says so right here in verse 6. No matter how that might be, no matter who that might be, no matter what that might look like, the woman, no matter how that woman is represented, is going to be looked after when all of this other disastrous stuff is taking place. Why? Because God takes care of His own. So whether we understand all this or not, whether we just rather not even think about this book, know this. God is God. He's got it all under His control. He wins. And that's the big thing. Period. And because He wins, because 
He is victorious over Satan. Because his son is going to lead the way for us, we can relax and know that there is a home awaiting us in heaven. That's the good news out of all of this. We also know it as the good news of the gospel. Live in it. Live in its peace. Live in its joy. Now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of, of trying to bring this, to me, somewhat difficult message to your people. And Lord, I just pray that I haven't interfered with your thoughts, that I have not confused anyone. But if I have, forgive me. I just pray, Lord, we'll continue to diligently seek your face. Yes, this is a hard, hard book. It's hard to understand. And we don't, it's not designed for us to understand it all. We don't even understand about heaven or about hell. And yet we believe in those things and we study them. So continue to help us, Lord, if we can open up just a little bit more than what we knew before about this book. Maybe it'll be worth it. We pray that it is. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.